Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. 74 years ago this week, the British Raj was split into two nations, India and Pakistan. Then it was a colonizer's crude carving up along religious lines. Plenty of those old tensions remain today, testing a relationship between two nuclear powers. And if you're a fan of the sport of badminton, you won't be surprised that Indonesia took home gold at this year's Olympics. It almost always does. We ask why the country is so mad for the sport and so good at it. But first... Today in Haiti, Tropical Depression Grace will bring rains that may cause flooding and mudslides. That will complicate rescue efforts following a massive earthquake on Saturday. Tonight, Haiti is reeling after being struck by a new disaster. The quake rocked residents of southwestern Haiti into the streets. Buildings and homes collapsed into rubble and dust. So far, it's known that more than 1,400 people have died. The tremor claimed many hospitals that would have aided the injured and many churches that are at the center of Haiti's social safety net. As aid trickles in from abroad, Haitians are trying to push their way into areas of shelter guarded by police. Haiti now fears what may come from above as it reels from what happened below, at a time when the political situation on the ground represented its own disaster. Poor Haiti seems unable to catch a break. Sarah Burke is The Economist's bureau chief for Mexico, Central America and the Caribbean. It's been plagued for years by political turmoil, poverty and natural disasters because of where it's located in the Caribbean. But of late, those problems have seemed to come in particularly quick succession, most recently with this earthquake. And where and when did the earthquake happen? So it was Saturday morning around 8.30 a.m. Haitian time, and it was 7.2 magnitude. So that's pretty big. It's stronger than the seven magnitude earthquake that hit Haiti in 2010, which killed 200,000 people. This one was in the southwest of the country, about 100 kilometers west of Port-au-Prince, the capital. So I spoke to an aid worker, Alan Joseph, who actually lives in that area. And he was listening to meditation music, of all things, when he felt his house moving side to side. So he said he pulled out his earphones and almost fell as he ran down the stairs. I mean, he described it to me as surfing a great wave. He went outside and did some initial damage assessment. He said it was shocking what he saw. I mean, houses and buildings collapsed. He came across uh, dead people, including a 10-year-old girl. I mean, really traumatic stuff. And that's just the tip of the iceberg, I guess, as regards the damage. 
Yeah, I mean, it's going to be a while yet before we know the full extent of the damage. I mean, that's always the case with earthquakes, but particularly in Haiti, where state resources are limited, so things tend to take a bit longer. The southwest is also somewhat remote compared to other parts of the country, so aid responses are also going to take longer. You know, there are some big towns like Lekai, but there's also some smaller villages. Several hospitals have been destroyed, which already sort of hampers the rescue effort. That's an area that doesn't actually have that much infrastructure in terms of good medical care as it is. And obviously then there's houses and churches too, which are a big focal point of the community in terms of support in normal times, let alone now. So all in all, it's really been rather devastating. And so do you think when the situation becomes clearer that this might have caused just as much damage, human and physical, as that 2010 earthquake? I think probably it will, of course, less damage in terms of the number of deaths, potentially a little bit less in terms of infrastructure damage insofar as the 2010 one was in Port-au-Prince. So a lot got damaged. I was there in June and you still see buildings that remain in ruins. But, you know, there are several reasons why this one may have a bigger impact. I mean, one is where it happened. This is an area of the country that's poorer and more uh, hard to reach. But also the sort of underlying conditions in the country are actually worse than they were in 2010. I mean, there are several reasons for that. The main one is that the former president was actually assassinated in July. Haitian officials say the well-trained and heavily armed mercenaries ambushed the president and his wife in their own home at 1 a.m. Wednesday morning, killing the president. And since then, there's been a huge amount of tumult. And even before that assassination, things had got really bad in Haiti. I mean, the politics was a mess. The former president, Jovenel Moïse, was ruling by decree. There were protests. Gang violence had risen. So really, this comes at a very, very difficult time for the country and will probably hinder the roadmap towards the elections, which are due in September, but also the investigations that are ongoing into the assassination of the president. And when we spoke about that assassination last month, it it wasn't clear who had carried it out. I mean, it still isn't. Investigations were always going to be somewhat slow. They're being supported, the Haitian officials, by the US and Colombia because there was some involvement of Colombian mercenaries. And the problem now is that the judge overseeing the investigation actually stepped down. That came two days after his chief clerk was murdered. And so at the moment, it really seems hard to see where this investigation is going. Haiti has actually asked the UN for some help in carrying it out, which they're yet to answer. And so who's in charge then? So at the moment, there's a prime minister, Ariel Henry, and he's in a caretaker role. Prenement prend décision, décréter état d'urgence sur l'Ouest. And so he doesn't really have a democratic uh, mandate, but there's no Senate, there's no parliament. They're promising elections in September, but no one really has confidence that the election is going to go ahead. You know, that's in a month and Haiti is still reeling or was reeling before this earthquake. And the other thing is, you know, the Haitians aren't very confident in elections. They think that there really needs to be some process in which you get new, less corrupt and incompetent leadership. And that seems pretty unlikely. So given the political challenges, the, the the practical ones, the fact that the big earthquake from 2010 is, still leaves parts of Haiti in ruins, what, what prospects for recovery this time? 
Um, it's very hard to see. You know, Haiti is amazingly resilient given all it's been through. But it's hard to be positive about recovery. You know, foreign governments have been very quick to pledge help and NGOs too are scrambling to get tents and food and water. But yesterday, the Prime Minister Oriol Henry said that he was going to have a major increase in rescue and aid spending. He, he seems to think that it's not happening fast enough. I mean, it's worth adding that foreign aid in Haiti is controversial. You know, there were very famous allegations of sexual abuse by UN aid workers after the 2010 earthquake. And it also doesn't help that the country is very prone to major storms. It's hurricane season. So, you know, it's hard to see with every part of Haiti in trouble at the moment, the economy, the politics, and now the earthquake. It's hard to see how well Haiti can actually recover this time. Sarah, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. For more analysis like this from our international network of correspondents, take out a subscription to The Economist. Get a great introductory deal at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from The Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. In London, the flags of the new Indian Union flutter over the headquarters of India and Pakistan. An era has ended, a new epoch begins. A subcontinent larger than the whole of Europe becomes two self-governing dominions within the British Commonwealth of Nations. This past weekend, both India and Pakistan celebrated the anniversary of their independence from Britain. Max Rodenbeck is The Economist's South Asia bureau chief. But whereas Pakistan celebrates on the 14th of August, India celebrates the same event on the 15th of August, even though both of them won their independence at the exact same moment at midnight in 1947. A moment comes, which comes but rarely in history, when we step out from the old to the new, when an age ends, and when the soul of a nation, long suppressed, finds utterance. The difference in when they celebrate is very tiny, but it does represent how determined the two countries are to be apart, having been together for centuries before their independence. So tell me how the partition of India set that discord in motion. When Britain left India, unfortunately, the whole territory that it had occupied was split into two parts. But it was split along religious grounds with the Muslim majority areas going into a new state, Pakistan, and the rest of the country remaining as India. So this is made for discomfort because there are many people who are against partition and have resented it. And the partition also left minorities on both sides of the border. And the whole process of partition involved a lot of pain and suffering as people had to move into new countries. So it has been an unhappy division, which has ended up creating a long unhappiness between these two two giant neighbors in Asia. And how and, and where is that unhappiness most pointedly felt? The biggest point of tension is actually the region of Kashmir, which is the northernmost part of the Indian subcontinent. 
And it was just a kind of unfortunate accident of history that at the time of partition, Kashmir had a Muslim majority, but it had a Hindu ruler. And so the territory ended up being unhappily divided between the two, with both India and Pakistan each claiming the whole of the territory. And this has been an unresolvable situation ever since 1947 and has ended up in periodic uh, clashes between India and Pakistan and also periodic troubles inside Kashmir itself as the people have been unhappy with rule by both Pakistan and India. And so what's happening at the moment? Well, the very latest change that's been made is that the government is redrawing electoral districts, it's gerrymandering to ensure that its people get elected in Kashmir. But this is just the latest in a long line of changes that have been made since 2019, when the Hindu nationalist government in Delhi under Narendra Modi stripped away part of the autonomy that had been given to its part of Kashmir, which had been part of the reason that part of Kashmir became part of India was an agreement that it would have an extra level of autonomy more than other Indian states. That's now been stripped away, which has caused a lot more resentment inside the region. And it has also caused India to beef up its troop presence. So Kashmir is even more unhappy now than it has been for a long time. And you say that the blunt partition along religious lines has left minority communities on on both sides of the border. How is that playing out? It's playing out in uncomfortable ways, unfortunately. Over time, the size of the minority in Pakistan, for example, has just diminished. Uh, there used to be a 10, 12% Hindu minority in Pakistan. It's just dwindled down to 2, 3%. But there's daily news of little attacks, little nastinesses against minorities in both countries in India and Pakistan. I mean, just last week, there was a, a protest in Delhi that turned into a very ugly scene where Hindu radicals were actually calling for a pogrom against Muslims, and the police seemed to just stand by and let it happen. But on the other hand, in Pakistan, not so long ago, there was video footage that went viral on social media showing Islamic Muslim radicals trashing a Hindu temple, smashing it up in Pakistan. So there's this kind of back and forth underlying tension and occasional communal riots in both India and Pakistan that target minorities. So 74 years on from partitioning, in particular in Kashmir, it seems as if the the details of partitioning are still being worked out. Yes, to a certain extent, parts of the border remain disputed. Parts of the border are not disputed anymore, but it's been the interests occasionally of politicians to stir up troubles and and sustain these uh, divisions. On the Indian side, Hindu nationalists like to point to Pakistan as a big bogey, and it's nice to have a hot war occasionally. And uh, same for the Pakistani generals who distract attention from problems in Pakistan by pointing to troubles on the border. So there's been an interest in keeping things on the boil, unfortunately. Given two countries in this region facing off against each other for all of these years, what effect does that have on the region more widely? The sort of cold and sometimes hot war between India and Pakistan over the last many decades has had a very bad effect on the region. It's sort of created tensions with all the neighboring countries and, you know, rivalries play out in proxy wars. I mean, for example, in Afghanistan, India was very much on the side of the government in Kabul, which has just fallen, and Pakistan was backing the the, the Taliban for many years. And so the outcome in Afghanistan is being celebrated as a victory in Pakistan and causing a lot of consternation and questioning in India. This rivalry sort of reverberates across the region in ways that are unpredictable and not reproductive. And given all of those sources of tension, what's your guess for how this will play out? Will tensions be this bad, worse, better by the the 100th anniversary? Well, unfortunately, there seems to be a kind of pattern of rolling change. At at certain points, India and Pakistan draw together because it gets too silly and painful and actually costly to to be in such a state of tension. They have a great deal in common, these two countries, and they actually have, you know, potential for trade and so on. But then it rolls apart again for other reasons. There is another big election looming in India 
in 2022, one of the more important state elections. And it's quite possible that hostile rhetoric will increase, you know, as we reach towards the polls. Prime Minister Modi in India has had a very bad year with COVID and various other problems and would like a distraction. So that doesn't bode well for relations with Pakistan. So occasionally the relationship gets worse and then it gets better. The trouble is that it never really gets fixed. Max, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. The game of badminton may have its origins on British lawns, played by ladies and gentlemen holding court. And you drop it onto the racket, you see, that is. But in Asia today, it's become an altogether different racket. It's a multi-million dollar industry, with Asian countries winning 19 of 20 medals at the World Championships. And nowhere is it bigger than in Indonesia, whose women's doubles team won gold at this year's Olympic Games. Badminton is such a big deal to Indonesia that the pair who won in Tokyo have been promised nearly $350,000 each. Charlie McCann is The Economist's Southeast Asia correspondent. The players have been showered with plenty of other gifts too. They've been offered all paid for holidays, houses, meatball kiosks, and one was even offered five cows. Lucky woman. The president was so overjoyed, he declared their triumph an early birthday gift to the nation ahead of its Independence Day celebrations. And indeed, when that final shuttlecock landed in Tokyo, it seemed as if the whole country erupted with joy. So was that gold medal in Tokyo so unexpected? That's the thing, no. Indonesia's really very good at badminton. And that's kind of the point. It's the only sport in which Indonesia has ever won gold at the Olympics. And it's done so at every single Olympics, bar one, since badminton was introduced in 1992. There is competition. In recent years, China has emerged as a heavyweight. And there are other countries, Asian countries primarily, who are nipping at the heels of Indonesia. But Indonesia is the sports juggernaut. It has won more titles at the Thomas Cup, which is the most prestigious and and one of the oldest tournaments than any other country. So why is that? Why is Indonesia so crazy for badminton? Well, it's very good at it. People like what they're good at. And so it's a source of national pride. The sport has created a string of national heroes that Indonesians can look up to. But there are more practical considerations as well. It's really easy to get a game going. Rackets and shuttlecocks can easily be bought. And they can also be fairly easily made if you're handy. So you get a piece of wood, carve that into a racket, string some fishing line into it, stick some feathers onto a cork for your shuttlecock. And once you've found a clothesline and an opponent, it's game on. And so the sport is played all over Indonesia, in the streets, in badminton courts. The president of Indonesia's Olympic Committee told me that anywhere you travel in the country, within a second, you'll find people playing badminton. And it's that kind of grassroots effort, that uh, on on every street kind of effort that's made Indonesia the, the, the world's champions? That's certainly part of it. People love the sport. Um, but it also happens to be Indonesia's most developed sport as well. So there are clubs all over the country. There are more than 3,500 of them. 
And scouts from the most prominent clubs are constantly scouring the country for fresh talent. Members of the national squad do very well for themselves. They're provided housing, training, and a stipend, which they can supplement with brand endorsements. The Indonesian Badminton Association says that new recruits to the national squad earn about $2,000 a month. And that's a lot of money in Indonesia. That's 10 times the average income. And those in the top tier of the sport can earn billions of rupiah through sponsorship deals. The spokesman of the association jokes that the parking lot of the National Training Center is a bit like a car showroom because it's full of players, Ferraris, and, and fancy cars. So parents encourage their children to play. And I think it's also notable that a lot of the champions come from ethnic minorities. So it's not just that Indonesians are really good at the sport and can work their way into the middle, the upper middle class if, if they excel in it. It's also that the sport reflects the diversity of the nation, which is another point of pride for Indonesians. So while I think Britain may have created the game, for all these reasons, Indonesians really feel that they've given it a new home. Thanks very much for your time, Charlie. Thank you, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review, and see you back here tomorrow. Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com.